demise of the podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today, Charles Bukowski's writing, as we are going to cover two short stories today. So this is what happened. I recorded the Texas Whorehouse story. I talked about an entirely different set of subjects, and it's kind of kismet that this happened. But when I went to edit everything together, I lost the first, I want to say, 20 minutes of the podcast. And I took that as a sign. Because for one thing, while I enjoyed the short story, it wasn't the best for the podcast. I think the birth, life, and death of an underground newspaper is a better choice. And this is going to be the last Bukowski story that I read on here for a hot minute. Now, you'll see why, because I'm going to also include the last half of the podcast as kind of a bonus. But we're going to get through this short story, and then I'll edit in the last part of that podcast. It'll be a little jarring. You may not know what's going on, but I wanted to give you two stories in a sense. So I'm starting over from scratch and I'm going to read a different story. Now, if you're not familiar with the podcast, if this is the first time you're listening, this is not what I normally do. What I usually do is I talk for a few minutes and then I get into what I'm reading and it's not an audiobook podcast. So I am reading and analyzing and I don't know of any other podcast that really does this. I know of podcasts that are quote-unquote literary that basically give you a summary, which is not what this is. So let's just get into the reading. If you like it, thank you. If you don't like it, fuck you. There were quite a few meetings at Joe Hyen's house at first, and I usually show drunk, so I don't remember much about the inception of Open Pussy, the underground newspaper, and I was told later what had happened, or rather, what I had done. Hyen said, You said you were going to clean out the whole place and that you were going to start with the guy in the wheelchair. Then he started to cry and people started leaving. You hit a guy over the head with a bottle. Cherry Haynes' wife said, You refused to leave and you drank a whole fifth of whiskey and kept telling me that you were going to fuck me up against the bookcase. Did I? No. Ah, the next time. Hyen said, Listen, Bukowski, we're trying to get organized and all you do is come around and bust things up. You're the nastiest damn drunk I've ever seen. Okay, I quit. Fuck it. Who cares about newspapers? No, we want you to do a column. We think you're the best writer in Los Angeles. I lifted my drink. That's a motherfucking insult. I don't come here to be insulted. Okay, maybe you're the best writer in California. There you go, still insulting me. Anyhow, we want you to do a column. I'm a poet. What's the difference between poetry and prose? Poetry says too much in a shorter time. Prose says too little and takes too long. We want a column for open pussy. Pour me a drink and you're on. Hyens did. 
I was on. I finished the drink and walked over to my skid row court thinking about what a mistake I was making. I was almost 50 years old and fucking with these long-haired bearded kids. Oh God, groovy, daddy, oh groovy, war as shit, war as hell, fuck, don't fight. I'd known all that for 50 years. It wasn't quite as, as exciting for me. Oh, and don't forget the pot, the stash, groove, baby. I found a pint in my place, drank it, four cans of beer, and wrote the first column. It was about a 300-pound whore I'd once fucked in Philadelphia. It was a good column. I corrected the typing errors, jacked off, and went to sleep. So, this is, of course, analogous to his experience. I believe the paper was called Open City, and he wrote a column called Notes of a Dirty Old Man, which you can read in two books that were compiled, and uh, Notes of a Dirty Old Man and More Notes of a Dirty Old Man. I have both. I should read some of them on here. But essentially, this column gained Bukowski notoriety as an author, and he was still working at the post office, and the FBI started investigating him as well. It started on the bottom floor of Hyen's two-story rented house. There were some half-assed volunteers, and the thing was new, and everybody was excited but me. I kept searching out the women for ass, but they all looked and acted the same. They were all 19 years old, dirty blonde, small ass, small breasted, busy, dizzy, and in a sense conceited without quite knowing why. Whenever I'd lay my drunken hands upon them, they were always quite cool. Quite. Look, Gramps, the only thing we want to see you raise is a North Vietnamese flag. Ah, your pussy probably stinks anyhow. Oh, you're a filthy old man. You really are. So disgusting. And then they'd walk off, shaking those little delicious apple buttocks at me and only carrying in their hand instead of my lovely purple head. Some juvenile copy about the cops shaking down the kids and taking away their baby Ruth bars on the sunset strip. Here I was, the greatest living poet since Auden, and I couldn't even fuck a dog in the ass. The paper got too big. Or Cherry got worried about me lounging about on the couch drunk and leering at her five-year-old daughter. When it was really bad. When the daughter started sitting on my lap and looking up at my face while squirming, saying, I like you, Bukowski. Talk to me. Let me get you another beer, Bukowski. Hurry back, sweetie. Listen, Bukowski, you old lech. Cherry, children love me. I can't help it. The little girl, Zaza, ran back with the beer and got back into my lap. I opened the beer. I like you, Bukowski. Tell me a story. Okay, honey. Well, once upon a time, we were this old man and this lovely little girl lost in the woods together. Cherry said, listen, you old lech. Ta-ta, Cherry, I do believe you have a dirty mind. Cherry ran upstairs, looking for Hyans, who was taking a crap. Joe, we've just got to move this paper out of here. I mean it. So here's the thing. A couple of things I need to address here. We're talking about Charles Bukowski, the guy who wrote I Am God and 
a poet and a poem rather called a uh, girl in a mini skirt reading the Bible. It's a poem that I teach in my class. He has an interview with hustler from the seventies. And I may have talked about this before, but he was asked about writing this dirty story that he wrote for probably hustler where he wrote about a guy who was into younger girls and Basically, Bukowski started trolling the Hustler interviewer. Now, Bukowski wasn't a pedophile. I'm just going to lay that out right now. He didn't enjoy writing stuff like that, for one thing. And I've never read any of that stuff. And a lot of the stuff that he wrote for Dirty Magazines is difficult to find unless you can find a copy of the Dirty Magazine. They were never compiled into things like The Most Beautiful Woman in Town or Tales of Ordinary Madness. So, you know, in a sense, he was ashamed of that material. He just did it for the money. But right here, he's obviously trolling this cherry lady. He doesn't like her. I do not believe that he would have molested this girl in any way. But also, you have to realize he's playing into this character. Bukowski in his stories or Chinaski, his alter ego, they're fictionalized. So when he talks about these 19 year old girls, for instance, and we're, we're living in a different time now, by the way, where people like, we already talked about Leonardo DiCaprio an episode or two ago. Basically, I don't give a fuck. I don't know Leonardo DiCaprio. What he does and what he does with a consenting adult is between them. And I'm not going to join in the public shaming of it. I've also already talked about my perspective on older men with younger women and all that. And I, I'm basically, I'm not into it. My wife is five, it's almost five years younger than me. And that wasn't something intentional. (laughs) She was just someone who was interested in dating me. And at the time I would have dated anybody. So yeah. Um, she was 20 when we met by the way, but you know, this is a guy who's in his forties, almost 50 and he's around these 19 year old girls. And you know, he's, he hasn't been laid in years. He talks about this at the beginning of the novel women. It'd been a long time since he, since he'd really been with a woman. So that's for you to put together. Okay. I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't think that he necessarily would prefer having any of these 19 year old girls. I or 19 year old women, (laughs) but let's be honest here. But the way he describes them, he's not really into them. I mean, he's objectifying them, but at the same time, they're just there. But it goes back to him playing on the audience's expectations of him. They found a vacant building up front, two floors, and one midnight while drinking port wine, I held the flashlight for Joe while he broke down the phone box on the side of the house and rearranged the wire so he could have extension phones without charge. About this time, the only other underground newspaper in L.A. accused Joe of stealing a duplicate duplicate copy of their mailing list of course I knew Joe had morals and scruples and ideals 
That's why he quit working for the large Metro Daily. That's why he quit working for the other underground newspaper. Joe was some, some, some kind of Christ, sure. Hold that flashlight, Stady, he said. In the morning at my place, the phone rang. It was my friend Mongo, the giant of the eternal high. Hank? Yeah. Cherry was over last night. Yeah. She had this mailing list. She was very nervous. She wanted me to hide it. Said Jensen was on the prowl. I hid it in the cellar under the pile of India ink sketches Jimmy the Dwarf did before he died. Did you screw her? What for? She's all bones. Those ribs would slice me to pieces while we fucked. You screwed Jimmy the Dwarf and he only weighed 89 pounds. He had soul. This is not the kind of conversation I was expecting to read today on the podcast, but here we are. For the next four or five issues, Open Pussy came with sayings like, We love the L.A. Free Press. Oh, we love the L.A. Free Press. Love, love, love the L.A. Free Press. They should have. They had their mailing list. One night, Jensen and Joe had dinner together. Joe told me later that everything was now all right. I don't know who screwed who or what went on under the table, and I didn't care. And I soon found that I had other readers besides the beaded and the bearded. In Los Angeles, the new federal building rises glass high, insane and modern, with the Kafka series of rooms, each indulged with their own personal frog-jacking-off bit, everything feeding off everything else, and thriving with a kind of worm-in-the-apple warmth and clumsiness. I paid my 45 cents per half parking, or rather I was given a time ticket for that amount, and I walked into the federal building, which was downstairs, which had downstairs murals like Diego Rivera would have done if nine-tenths of his sensibilities had been cut away. American sailors and Indians and soldiers smiling away, trying to look noble in cheap yellows and Wretching, rotting greens and pissy blues. I was being called into personnel. I knew that it wasn't for a promotion. They took the letter and cooled me on the hard seat for 45 minutes. It was part of the old, you gotta shit in your intestines and we don't have routine. Luckily, from past experience, I read the wardy sign And I cooled it myself, thinking about how each of the girls who walked by would go on a bed, legs high, or taking it in the mouth. Soon I had something huge between my legs, well, huge for me, and I had to stare at the floor. I was finally called in by a, I'm not going to read this, uh uh-uh, by a woman, (laughs) very much class and even a spot of soul, whose smile said she didn't know I was going to be fucked, but also hinted she wouldn't mind throwing me a little pee hole herself. (laughs) Jesus Christ! Oh my God! See, here's the thing about his short stories. They're a lot different than his, his, uh, his novels. I don't... Even women doesn't really go this far. And I remember my uncle was telling me about how uh, he read a book of Bukowski's short stories while he was on the beach. And he said, yeah, I don't think that Bukowski should be taught in college courses either, uh, which, of course, now I'm teaching Bukowski's poetry in my course. But that's a lot different 
than what's going on here. I walked in. Have a seat. Man behind the desk. Same old shit. I sat. Mr. Bukowski? Yeah. He gave me his name. I wasn't interested. He leaned back, stared at me with a swivel. I'm sure he expected somebody younger and better looking, more flamboyant, more intelligent looking, more treacherous looking. I was just old, tired, disinterested, hungover. He was a bit gray and distinguished. If you know the type of distinguished I mean, never pulled beats out of the ground with a bunch of I can't say that on the podcast, or been in a drunk tank 15 or 20 times, or picked lemons at 6 a.m. without a shirt on because you knew that at noon it would be 110 degrees. Only the poor knew the meaning of life. The rich and the safe had to guess. Strangely then, I began thinking of the Chinese. Russia has softened. It could be that only the Chinese knew digging up from the bottom, tired of soft shit. But then, I had no politics. That was more con. History screwed us off. Finally, I was done ahead of time. Baked, fuck, screwed out, nothing left. Well, um, we've had an informant. Yeah, go ahead. Who wrote us that you were not married to, to the mother of your child. I imagined him then decorating a Christmas tree with a drink in his hand. That's true, I'm not married to the mother of my child, aged four. Do you pay child support? Yes. How much? I'm not going to tell you. He leaned back. You must understand that those of us in the government service must maintain certain standards. Not really feeling guilty of anything, I didn't answer. I waited. Oh, where are you boys? Kafka, where are you? Lorca, shot in the dirty road, where are you? Hemingway, claiming he was being tailed by the CIA and nobody believing him but me. Then, old, distinguished, well-rested, non-beat-picking Gray turned around and reached into a small and well-varnished cabinet behind him and pulled out Six or seven copies of Open Pussy. He threw them on the desk like stinking sift and raped turds. He tapped them with one of his non-lemon-pulling hands. We are led to believe that you are the writer of these columns, notes of a dirty old man. Yeah. What do you have to say about these columns? Nothing. Do you call this writing? It's the best that I can do. Well, I'm supporting two sons who are now taking journalism at the best of colleges, and I hope he tapped the sheets, the stinking turd sheets, with the bottom of his ringed and unfactoried and unjailed hand and said, I hope that my sons never turn out to write like you do. They won't, I promised him. Mr. Bukowski... I think that the interview is finished. Yeah, I said. I lit a cig, stood up, scratched my beer gut, and walked out. The second interview was sooner than I expected. 
I was hard at work, of course, at one of my more important menial tasks when the speaker boomed, Henry Charles Bukowski report to the tour superintendent's office. I dropped my important task and got a travel form from the local screw and walked on over to the office. The tour soup's male secretary, a old gray flab, looked over at me. Are you Charles Bukowski? he asked me, quite disappointed. Yeah, man. Please follow me. I followed him. It was a large building. We went down several stairways and down around a long hall and then into a large dark room that entered into another large and very dark room. Two men were sitting there at the end of the table that must have been 70 feet long. They sat under a lone lamp and at the end of the table sat this single chair for me. You ever been in a room like this? Back when I worked a cubicle job, I went up to the third floor of this office building. It was the top floor. And we were meeting these teams together in this big room that was intended for executives. But here's the thing. All the executives moved to Florida, so this was just an empty room. And it had a big screen for a, a projector and... It had very dark ambient lighting. The brightest it got was a lot darker than our uh, fluorescent lit office rooms. So we get in, and it's three long tables that are pushed together with a coffee station in the back. That's where uh, my lead liked to sit because he liked to be different and seem more important than everybody. And I have a little story I could tell you about him, but I'll save that for another time. So, I'm sitting here in these cozy swivel chairs next to this more conservative lady that I worked with. And uh, she was looking at the light fixtures. And she said, what are those called? And I said, oh, they're called ceiling titties. And she says, oh, you, you go into like Home Depot? Yeah, just ask for the ceiling titties. They'll tell you, they'll show you right where you need to look. And, uh, you know, I waited a couple of weeks before I told her that wasn't the case. But, um, you know, she just went along with a joke, I guess. Next to this huge office building was another office building full of cubicles. But it was for the support team and customer support as well. So we had two different customer support. One was software. One was specifically for customers to call in. I don't know what the fuck they were for. But in the back, there was a room. And it was always dark. But it had, you know, light from computer screens. And I have no idea what those people were doing in there. It had something to do with software. And I remember the offices up front for the VPs. They were the only ones who had windows. And one of the managers or VPs liked to open his office door on Fridays. And one Friday, he decided to play a Black Crow's live DVD, not a CD. He had a TV in his office and he was playing the Black Crow's live on this TV while he worked. And he thought it was... I guess it was a treat for the rest of us to have to sit and listen to it while we were trying to work. 
I mean, I could hear it over my headphones. That's the kind of people that end up in management and VP positions, people. I walked in. The two men stood up. Here we were under one lamp in the dark. For some reason, I thought of all the assassinations. Bukowski? Yeah. They shook hands with me. Sit down. Groovy, baby. This is uh, Mr. Smith from Washington, said the other guy, who was one of the local dog turds. I didn't say anything. It was a nice lamp, made of human skin. Mr. Washington did the talking. He had a portfolio with quite a few papers within. Now, Mr. Bukowski, yeah? Your age is 48, and you've been employed by the United States government for 11 years. Yeah. You were married to your first wife two and a half years, were divorced, and you married your present wife when? We'd like the date. No date. No marriage. You have a child? Yeah. How old? Four. You're not married? No. Do you pay child support? Yes. How much? About standard. Then he leaned back and we sat there. The three of us said nothing for a good four or five minutes. Then a stack of the underground newspaper open pussy appeared. Do you write these columns... Notes of a dirty old man? Yeah. He handed a copy to Mr. Los Angeles. Have you seen this one? No, no, I haven't. Across the top of the column was a walking cock with legs. A huge, huge walking cock with legs. The story was about a male friend of mine I'd screwed in the ass by mistake while drunk believing that it was one of my girlfriend's. It took me two weeks to finally force my friend to leave my place. It was a true story. Um, you know, I gotta say, I, I'm learning things about Mikowski every day. Do you call this writing, Mr. Washington asked? I don't know about the writing, but I thought it was a very funny story. Didn't you think it was humorous? But this, this illustration across the top of the story... The walking cock? Yeah. I didn't draw it. You have nothing to do with the selection of illustrations. The paper is put together on Tuesday nights. And you're not there on Tuesday nights? I'm supposed to be here on Tuesday nights. They waited some time, going through open pussy, looking at my columns. You know, said Mr. Washington, tapping the open pussies again with his hand, You would have to have been all right if you'd kept writing poetry. But when you began writing this stuff, he again tapped the open pussies. I waited two minutes and thirty seconds, then I asked, Are we here to consider the postal's officials as the new critics of literature? Oh, no, no, said Mr. Washington. We didn't mean that. I sat and waited. There is a certain conduct expected of postal employees. You're in the public eye. You are to be an example of exemplary behavior. It appears to me, I said, that you are threatening my freedom of expression with a resultant loss of employment. The ACLU might be interested. 
we'd still prefer if you didn't write the column. Gentlemen, there comes a time in each man's life when he must choose to stand or run. I choose to stand. Their silence. Wait. Wait. The shuffling of open pussies. Then Mr. Washington said, Mr. Bukowski. Yeah? Are you going to write any more columns about the post office? I had written one about them, which I thought was more humorous than demeaning, but then maybe my mind was twisted. I let them wait this time. Then I answered, Not unless you make it necessary for me to do so. Then they waited. It was kind of an interrogation chess game where you hoped the other man would make the wrong move. Blurt out his pawns, knights, bishops, king, his queen, his guts... And meanwhile, as you read this, here goes my goddamn job. Groovy, baby. Send dollars for beer and reeds to the Charles Bukowski Rehabilitation Fund. Mr. Washington stood up. Mr. Los Angeles stood up. Mr. Charles Bukowski stood up. Mr. Washington said, I think the interview is over. We all shook hands like sudden maddened snakes. Mr. Washington said, Meanwhile, don't jump off any bridges. Strange, I hadn't even thought about that. We haven't had a case like this in ten years. In ten years, he was the last poor sucker. So, I asked. I gotta say, as someone who has written some very violent and sometimes sexual things in my books and in my, not so much in my short stories, but you know, I've written about sex a little bit in my, my poetry. Last night when I wrote a poem that's currently on Substack, I uh, used the phrase mother's cunt, which I got from Louis C.K., but um, I've never had anyone challenge me on what I've written. It seems to me that there is a different perspective on the things that people write versus if they were to post a YouTube video of something like that, you know, but with that in mind, um, you know, there have been people who've been let go because of their social media. There have been people who weren't hired because of their social media. There have been people who have been fired for a lot of things that they've done on the Internet. But with writing, I don't know. It seems like there's some sort of unspoken law or rule or some sort of respect for that. You know, when I was growing up, my mother wouldn't let me watch anything. But if I wanted to read something, she would let me read it. And other people seem to have the same notion that if it's in a book, I guess you have the option to put the book down or not read it at all. No one's forcing it upon you. The fucking paper grew or seemed to and moved to a place on Melrose. I always hated to go there with copy, though, because everybody was so shitty, so truly shitty and snobby and not quite right, you know. Nothing changed. The history of the man-beast was very slow. They were like the shits I'd faced when I first walked into the copy room of the L.A. City College newspaper in 1939 or 1940. All these little hoity-toity dummies with little newspaper hats over their heads while writing stale, stupid copy. So very important, not even human enough to acknowledge your presence. Newspaper people were always the lowest of the breed. Janitors who picked up women's cunt rags and the crappers had more soul. 
naturally. I looked at those college freaks, walked out and never went back. Now, open pussy, 28 years later. Copy in my hand, there was Cherry at a desk. Cherry was on the telephone, very important, couldn't speak, or Cherry not at the telephone, writing something on a piece of paper, couldn't speak. The same old con as always. 30 years hadn't broken the dish, and Joe Hyens running around doing big things, running up and down the stairs. He had a little place on top, rather exclusive of course, and some poor shit in the back room with with him where Joe could watch him getting copy ready for the printer on the IBM. He gave the poor shit 35 a week for a 60 hour work week and the poor shit was glad, grew a beard and lovely soulful eyes and the poor shit hacked out the third rate piteous copy. With the Beatles playing full volume over the intercom and the phone ringing continually, Joe Hyens, editor, was always running off someplace important somewhere. But when you read the paper the next week, you'd wondered where he'd run. He wasn't in there. Open Pussy went on for a while. My columns continued to be good, but the paper itself was half-ass. I could smell the death cun of it. There was a staff meeting every other Friday night. I busted up a few of them. After hearing the results, I just didn't go anymore. If the paper wanted to live, let it live. I stayed away and just slid my stuff under the door in an envelope. Then Hyens got me on the phone. I've got an idea. I want you to get me together the best poets and prose writers that you know, and we're going to put out a literary supplement. I got it together for him. He printed it, and the cops busted him for obscenity. But I was a nice guy. I got him on the phone. Hyens? Yeah. Since, uh... You done got busted for the thing. I'm going to let you have my column for free. That ten bucks you've been paying me? It goes for the open pussy defense fund. Thanks very much, he said. So, there he was, getting the best writing in America for nothing. Then Cherry phoned me one night. Why don't you come to our staff meetings anymore? We all miss you terribly. What? What the hell are you saying, Cherry? You on the stuff? No, Hank, we all love you, really. Do come to our next staff meeting. I'll think about it. It's dead without you. And death with me. We want you, old man. I'll think about it, Cherry. So I showed. I had been given the idea by Hines himself that since it was the first anniversary of Open Pussy, the wine and... The pussy and the life and the love would be flowing. But coming in very high and expecting to see the fucking on the floor and love galore, I only saw all these little love creatures busily at work. They reminded me very much so humped and dismal of the little ladies working on piecework I used to deliver cloth to, working my way up through rope hand-pulled elevators full of rats and sink. One hundred years old, piecework ladies proud and dead and erotic, as all hell working, working to make a millionaire out of somebody in New York, 
in Philadelphia and St. Louis. Doesn't sound like much has changed since then, I gotta say. There's always a group of people really doing the work out there to make someone else money. At that cubicle job I had, we were always told that our department was the heart and soul of the company. But, you know, after the pandemic, my last raise there before I got laid off was 10 cents. So, yeah, I was very appreciated. And these, for open pussy, were working without wages. And there was Joe Hines, looking a bit brutal and fat, walking up and down behind them, hands folded behind his back, seeing that each volunteer did his or her duty properly and exactly. Hines! Hyans, you filthy piece of shit, I screamed as I walked in. You're running a slave market. You're a lousy, puking Simon Legree. You cry for justice from the police and from the Washington, D.C., and you're the biggest, lousiest swine of them all. You are Hitler multiplied by a hundred, you slave labor bastard. You write of atrocities and then triple them up for yourself. Who the fuck do you think you're fooling, your mother? Who the fuck you think you are? Luckily for Hines, the rest of the staff was quite used to me and they thought that whatever I was foolishness and that Hines himself stood for the truth. Sit down, he said. We're trying to increase the circulation. Sit down and clip one of these green ads to each of the newspapers. We're sending out leftover copies to potential subscribers. Dear old freedom love boy Hyans, using big business methods to put over his crap, brainwashed beyond himself. He finally came up and took the stapler out of my hand. You're not stapling fast enough. Fuck you. There was supposed to be champagne all over this place. Now I'm eating staples? Hey, Eddie. He called over another slave labor member, thin-cheeked, wire-armed. Poor Eddie was starving. Everybody was starving for the cause, except Hines and his wife. They lived in a two-story house and sent one of their children to a private school. And there was old Papa back in Cleveland, one of the big stiffs of the plane dealer, with more money than anything else. You gotta remember that this is the 60s when this is happening. It's still going on today. There's still people who are working for, you know, barely anything barely making it paid paycheck to paycheck while someone is wearing a suit, smoking a big cigar with their feet up on their desk, doing nothing. And it strikes me that those who are ambitious are ambitious for the sake of themselves. But those who are ambitious at an early age and they get their hopes and dreams dashed, you know, they end up in these soulless jobs. And that is the nature of capitalism. Now, I'm not saying that capitalism itself is inherently bad. It's that we have perverted this notion that anyone, anywhere, can do anything they want. We've been selling this lie for the sake of someone else. Someone else has been getting the big cheese while we've been getting the scraps. We're expected to work 50 years and then... After we retire, we might have a decade or a little bit before we end up dead or in a nursing home. Does that sound like a good life to you? 
I mean, I guess life is what you make it. There are a lot of people who live that life who wouldn't change a thing. I like work. I'm not against work at all. I like the routine of my job. I like doing it. I don't have a problem with it. I've had people speak to me about moving up in a higher position, and I'm not ready for it. I like doing what I do. And right now, I'd really like to teach. But at the same time, a teacher can only be as good as his students. So when I get in front of a classroom and my class isn't getting what I'm putting down, you dig, then I can only put so much effort into the work. I can get down on my knees and scream and roar around the classroom to get their attention, but that doesn't mean that they're going to understand what I'm talking about. My friend Chris sent me this New York Times article about the death of the English major. And even one of the professors in the article said that since he got a smartphone, he went from reading five books a month to maybe one a, book a month if he's, if he's lucky. We've all been drained of what made us who we are, of what made us intellects, in a sense. I'm not saying I'm any better, but I've got this podcast where I read, so I'm reading at least once a week. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to read books, but sometimes I'm just not in the mood for it, and I would rather play Pokemon, you know? I'm an adult. I can do what I want. I play guitar almost every day. Lately, it has been every day. I've been, you know, trying to actually force myself to take time off, but I get called to it. I feel like doing it because I love it. That's the sign of a passion. All right. You got most of that story, okay? If you want to read the rest, go buy or download or whatever The Most Beautiful Woman in Town and read it. You could probably Google it and find it. But... I am going to let this podcast end with the last half of the podcast that I recorded earlier today. It's going to be a little weird because I'm starting in the middle of a story, but uh, essentially the Texas whorehouse story begins with Bukowski going to a whorehouse thinking that it's a regular kind of boarding house, and he's in this town in Texas because... He's met this girl on a bus who cr cried because uh, he wouldn't get off on the bus with her. So he feels like he broke her heart. He's never had a woman cry over him before. So he goes and he tries to find her in Texas. And that is all I will tell you. So I will let you know I'm about to edit in the last half of the podcast. Don't be surprised when I, it's me reading something don't think what the fuck just happened okay this is the last part of this short story we're moving on to the next short story okay okay but he knows when to do it and when not to do it and what he could have done was he could have had a whole scene where they talked and he gave this woman a whole backstory and you know he wouldn't do that for most of his you know unnamed characters to begin with but you know she laughed and I, and did of course she had not had an easy life I don't know how long we drank I, I mean what else do you really need to know I got up the next day and walked down the street and got the paper and 
there it was and the popular communist communist oh my god my grandfather's on my mind popular columnist column my name was mentioned charles bukowski novelist journalist traveler we had met in the air the lovely lady and i and she had landed in texas and i had gone on to new orleans to cover an assignment but it flown back in the lovely lady embedded in my mind, only knowing her mother owned a photography studio. I went back to the hotel and got hold of a pint of whiskey and five or six quarts of beer, and I finally shit. What a joyful act! Exclamation point. It might have been the column. I climbed back into the netting. Then the phone rang. It was the extension phone. I reached out and picked it up. We have a, a call for Mr. Bukowski from the editor of uh, the paper. Would you care to answer? All right, I said. Hello. Are you Charles Bukowski? Yes. What are you doing in a place like that? Well, what do you mean? I found uh, the people to be quite nice here. That's the worst whorehouse in town. We've been trying to run that place out of town for 15 years. What made you go there? It was cold. I just got in the first place I could. I came in by bus and it was cold. You came by air, remember? I remember. All right, I have the the lady's place of residence. Do you want it? All right. If it'll be all right with you. If you're reluctant, forget it. I just don't understand what you're doing living in a place like that. All right, you're the editor of the biggest paper in town and you're talking to me over telephone and I'm in a Texas whorehouse. Now look, just forget it. The lady was crying or something. It worked on my mind. I'll have to take the next bus out of town. Wait, wait, what? I'll give you her address. She read the column. She read between the lines. She phoned me. She wants to see you. I didn't tell her where you were living. We were... Uh, we are hospitable people here in Texas. Yes, I was in one of your bars the other night. I found out. You drink too? I not only drink, I am a drunkard. I don't think I ought to give you the lady's address. Forget the whole fucking thing then, I said and hung up. The phone rang again. You have a call, Mr. Bukowski, from the editor of the paper. Put him on. Look, Mr. Bukowski, we need a follow-up to the story. A lot of people are interested. Tell your columnist to use his imagination. Look, do you mind me asking what you do for a living? I don't do anything. Just travel around on buses and make young ladies cry? Not everybody can do that. Look, I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to give you her address. You run over and you see her. Maybe I'm the one who's taking a chance. He gave me the address. Do you want me to tell you how to get there? Never mind. If I can find a whorehouse, I can find hers. There's something I don't quite like about you. Forget it. If she's a good piece of ass, I'll phone you back. I hung up. It was a small brown house. An old lady came to the door. I'm looking for Charles Bukowski, I told her. No, uh, pardon me, I said. I'm looking for Gloria Westhaven. I'm her mother, she said. Are you the fellow from the airplane? I'm the fellow from the bus. Gloria read the column. She knew it was you right away. 
Fine. What do we do now? Oh, come in. I came on in. Gloria, the old woman hollered. Gloria walked out. She looked all right still. Just another one of those healthy Texas redheads. I want to know how many women are, are named Gloria Westhaven in Texas. Jesus Christ, he's met two of them who were redheads. She walked me into her bedroom but left the door open. We both sat down far away from each other. What do you do? she asked. I'm a writer. Oh, how nice. Where have you been published? I haven't been published. Then, uh, in a way, you're not really a writer. That's right. And I'm living in a whorehouse. What? I said you're right. I'm not really a writer. No, I mean the other part. I'm living in a whorehouse. Do you always live in whorehouses? No. How come you're not in the army? I couldn't get past the shrink. <laughs> you're joking. I'm, I'm glad I'm not. You don't want to fight? No. They bombed Pearl Harbor. I heard. You don't want to fight against Adolf Hitler? Not really. I'd rather someone else do it. You're a coward. Yes, I am. And it's not that I mind killing a man so much. It's just that I don't like to sleep in barracks with a bunch of guys snoring and then being awakened by some horny damn fool with a bugle. And I don't want to, I don't like to wear that itchy olive drab shit. My skin is very sensitive. I'm glad something about you is. I'm glad too. But I wish it weren't my skin. Maybe you ought to write with your skin. Maybe you ought to write with your pussy. You're vile and cowardly. Somebody has to turn back the fascist hordes. I'm engaged to a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy, and if he were here right now, he'd thrash you good. He probably would, and that would only make me more vile. At least it would teach you to be a gentleman around ladies. I suppose you're right. If I killed Mussolini, would I be a gentleman? Of course. I'll sign right up. They didn't want you, remember? I remember. We both sat there a long time, not saying anything. Then I said, Look, do you mind if I ask you something? Go ahead, she said. Why did you ask me to get off the bus with you? And why did you cry when I didn't? Well, it's your face. You're a little bit ugly, you know. Yes, I know. Well, it's ugly and tragic, too. I just didn't want to let that tragic go. I felt sorry for you, so I cried. How did your face ever get so tragic? Oh, Jesus Christ, I said. Then I got up and walked out. I walked all the way back to the whorehouse. The guy at the door knew me. Hey, champ, where'd you get the limp? Something about Texas. Texas? Were you for or against Texas? For Texas, of course. You're learning, champ. Yeah, I know. I walked upstairs and got on the phone and got the guy to dial the editor of the newspaper. This is Bukowski, my friend. You met the lady? I met the lady. How'd it work out? Fine, just fine. I must have creamed an hour. Tell your columnist. I hung up. 
I walked downstairs and outside and found the same bar. Nothing had changed. The big guy was still there, an empty bar stool on either side of him. I sat down and ordered two beers. I drank the first one straight down, then drank the other half. I remember you, said the big guy. What was it about you? Skin. Sensitive. You remember me, he asked. I remember you. I thought you'd never be back. I'm back. Let's play the little game. We don't play games here in Texas, stranger. Yeah? You still think Texans stink? Some of them do. There I was, back under the table. I got out from under, stood up, and walked out. I walked back to the whorehouse. The next day in the paper it said that the romance had failed. I'd flown out of town to New Orleans. I got my stuff together and walked down to the bus station. I got to New Orleans. Got a legitimate room and sat around. I saved the newspaper clipping for a couple of weeks and threw them away. Wouldn't you have? I think next week is going to be the last Bukowski story that we read in this series for uh, The Most Beautiful Woman in Town and other stories. But what I like about this whorehouse story is that it sets up this would-be romance here. And he's come to this town hoping to see this woman who cried over him and he took that as a sign that she must have liked him or maybe even loved him so it's ironic and it's not what you expect it it doesn't have a happy ending and I think that one of the things that I love about drama is a good drama will have some level of unpredictability with it last night I finally got my wife to sit down and watch as good as it gets with Jack Nicholson, which I still think is a good movie, but it doesn't have a predictability to it. So for one thing, guy does not end up in a perfect relationship with the girl in the end. It's Jack Nicholson. He's supposed to be the epitome of cool, but then he's playing this guy who's kind of a loser. He gets really awkward for, from confrontation. He's got severe, Obsessive compulsive disorder. I've also got obsessive compulsive disorder, but not to this degree. Things can trigger it to make it worse, of course. But what ends up helping him is not only the love of a dog, but also the compassion that he feels for this waitress. Now, the only reason why he helps the waitress to begin with is because he's got his routine that he wants to uh, keep. He likes eating at the same restaurant for breakfast. He likes having the same table. He likes having the same waitress. And when something messes with that, he can't maintain the routine. What helps him with the the routine is not just OCD. It's, It's something that allows him to function within the world. If he goes to a place and it's different every time then it's unpredictable. And unpredictability for someone suffering from what he does is not good for him. So one of the reasons why is not just OCD, where he must have everything a certain way. No. It's following these rituals. 
The rituals help maintain his stability. If you've never seen the movie before, Greg Kinnear is Jack Nicholson's neighbor. He plays an artist who happens to be gay. And when he's working with an, a model who is not really a model for the sake of a painting, uh, the model conspires against him to rob him. And while he's being robbed, they end up hurting him. And because of the $60,000 hospital bill, he ends up losing everything. What's ironic and not predictable about all this is that, uh, as a Helen Hunt, I always get her name confused with Holly Hunter. One of them. She ends up getting more intimate with Greg Kinnear's character than Jack Nicholson. That's part of the ironic twist of it all. That I think that part of it is in response to the rise of the rom-com in the 90s. See, with Marvel films, people complain that there's too many superhero movies out and they're ruining everything and la-di-da. But in the 90s and the 2000s, that was the rom-com. We recently watched the first half of Failure to Launch with Matthew McConaughey just because my wife wanted to watch a, an older rom-com. And it was terrible. It was terrible. We couldn't finish it. And it was part of that that led to the backlash, you know. As good as it gets was just in response to that sort of thing. But the real backlash was superhero films. You, you can't have one movement without something that has something to do with the previous movement. There's always a response. You know, punk mu- music in the 70s was also in response to disco music. It wasn't solely in response to disco music, just like superhero films aren't just in response to rom-coms. But what you end up having in all of these movements is something that leads to the other thing. And pretty soon we're going to have another rise in something. I, I hear a lot of people getting tired of all these superhero films and I don't think they're ever going away. Just like the Western has never really gone away. There's still Western films made all the time. Before I sign off, I want to talk a little bit about my new book, Green Skin. And also, um, a a couple of ideas that I have for episodes of the podcast, and they may not be well received when I eventually do them, but I still want to get around to them. So first of all, Greenskin, I wrote a Substack essay that introduced Greenskin. It gave the synopsis of Greenskin, and I want to read a little bit from it. So if you haven't followed along with my journey of writing this new novel, Greenskin, either on Substack or Demise of the Podcast, you'll be happy to know I'll regale you with those details. Basically, I have a new novel out and I have to put forth a little effort to promote it, which is my least favorite part of the process. The official synopsis of Greenskin is my attempt at baiting the audience into reading the book without spoiling anything. Isn't that every synopsis, Patrick? Wayne's problems are fairly universal. He works for a company that doesn't appreciate him. His wife no longer loves him. When he looks at the crown of his head in the mirror, his scalp grows more visible each week. All of this is typical for a man in his late 20s, except his skin is changing. 
Suddenly his boring routine of going into work, coming home to eat fast food, and barely making ends meet is over, all because he's turning green. Pretty soon I will probably do a series on green skin. I don't want to do it immediately right after the book comes out, though. And part of the reason why is, other than the fact that I actually considered doing an audiobook and releasing it at the same time as the print and ebook, which I've decided against doing because partially because of the podcast, but also because I have other things I want to do. And I want to give people the chance to read it before I start really getting into it. So I guess people could just not listen to the podcast and then read the book and then go back. And But I don't want to deal with that right now. So other than this other Bukowski short story that I want to read, The Birth, Life, and Death of an Underground Newspaper, I want to do an episode about my music. I've talked about my music on here, but I think it's time that I have kind of a long discussion about it because, let's face it, nobody cares enough about anything to do with me to interview me about my fucking music. I've been interviewed about my writing before. I've never, a day in my life, been interviewed about my music. So I want to give kind of a history on it. I want to entice you to listen to more of it. I'll play some of it during the episode while I talk, of course. But... The thing is, is that I have a lot to say, and this is my podcast, so I'll say it on here. In relation to music, I want to do an episode about Ween. Now, Ween is not my favorite band, but I listen to them all the time now, and I'd like to talk about that and my thoughts on their music and whatnot. But also, you know, I like to try new things on here. I've done a couple episodes about music. I did an REM one. I did a Glenn Campbell one, although I read Glenn Campbell's autobiography on that one. I don't have a book on Ween. I don't know if there is a book on Ween. Maybe there is. I don't think so. Maybe I should write the book on Ween. I'm an author. This episode is a little short. I apologize for that. Until next time, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading, happy writing. Happy writing.